0: Listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. That simple sentence brings to an end the story of this extraordinary and extraordinarily complex character, King David. This is the twelfth and final sermon in the series that I've been doing on kingship and nation building in ancient Israel. It is the longest series I've ever offered in my 28 years as a preacher. I hope you think it's been worth it. We followed the thread of the story, from the prophet Samuel's warning words about the liabilities of kingship, through David's rise from shepherd to shepherd king, to David's moral collapse. We've seen his family rocked by pain and by internal politics. And last week, we had a picture of this great king, grown old and frail unable even to get his body warm. All along the way, there have been these moments of seeing our own lives mirrored in his life and of the lives of those around him. By telling the full and sometimes raw truth about the humanness of these characters, the biblical storyteller has also told some truths about us. David slept with his ancestors, and so Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, and Solomon's kingdom was firmly established. We close our cycle of stories by telling just one more about David's son, Solomon. Solomon is remembered positively in the tradition for two things— Firstly, it is Solomon who is the one who will build the great temple in Jerusalem, something God had not permitted his father David to do. And as described in the first book of Kings, what Solomon builds is an extraordinary edifice. Secondly, Solomon is remembered and celebrated for his wisdom— So just as the name of David is powerfully associated with the book of Psalms, so the name of Solomon is associated with the wisdom writings, with Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and even Ecclesiastes. The roots of that association of Solomon with the wisdom tradition are shown in this evening's reading where we see this young king asking God that he be granted an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. I have a a really clear memory of being introduced to this story in a grade five or six Sunday school class. My teacher, a woman named Lois Lamont, She's now in her 90s, and she is often here on a Sunday night in our midst. Well, that teacher wrote three words on the chalkboard, money, fame, wisdom. If you could choose one of those three, she said, which one would it be? Now, I remember our class having quite a discussion about whether each of us would go for money, fame, or wisdom. I, at that point, was dreaming, rather unrealistically, of someday playing hockey professionally in the NHL. Actually, it was utterly unrealistic. So I might have picked fame. I don't know. What I do remember is how she closed the discussion by talking about this narrative from 1 Kings. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, "'Ask what I should give you. "'Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind "'to govern your people,' Solomon had answered, "'a mind able to to discern between good and evil, "'for who can govern this great people?' And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this, the narrator tells us. It's a request that's not self-serving, not like fame or a hockey career. It's the sort of request one wants to hear from a young king. Indeed, the Lord says to Solomon in his dream, Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor. All your life, no other king shall compare with you. And I remember Mrs. Lamont telling us that because Solomon had chosen wisdom over fame and money, God had granted him all three. She underlined that word wisdom and then drew a big circle around all three words. And her point was forever imprinted on me, wisdom is the greatest of gifts. Well, if all we had were the demonstrations of Solomon's wisdom and the account of his building of the great temple in Jerusalem, then he would be an unparalleled figure in the story of Israel. But is it any surprise that the writer of 1 Kings has given us more than that? That this truth-telling tradition has insisted on telling the whole story of Solomon, warts and all, the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings are sometimes referred to as the Deuteronomistic history, reflecting their connection to the spiritual and theological tradition voiced in the book of Deuteronomy. Like the books of Samuel and Kings, Deuteronomy is quite cautious about the prospect of kingship quite deeply aware of the pitfalls of that kind of power. And so, in Deuteronomy 17, we can read the following. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, You may, indeed, set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. When you decide, in other words, that you want a king just like the other nations have a king, you'll be allowed to have one. But there are going to be some pretty unique terms to the Israelite king's job description. It will need to be someone that the Lord your God has chosen And the person will need to be one of your own community, not an outsider or an import from some other nation. Seems like a fairly reasonable starting point. But then the writer of Deuteronomy continues. Even so, the king must not acquire many horses for himself. And he must not acquire many wives for himself. Or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold the king may not acquire in great quantity for himself. So, many horses. In the ancient world, that meant armaments. Many wives, silver and gold in great quantities. They're all swept out of the royal job description. All of the perks of kingship are declared out of bounds for the king of Israel. Instead of all those perks, this is what a true king of Israel is to be about. Deuteronomy continues, When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, the king shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall remain with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. The heart of the Deuteronomic vision of kingship is a call to sit on the throne, so sit on the seat of authority, with Torah scroll in hand, reading it day by day and ruling from that peculiar vantage point. Not exalting himself above other members of the community, the text continues, and not turning aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left. As Walter Brueggemann has summed it, the king's job is to study Scripture and watch the neighborhood. Now, given those terms and that vision, that peculiar vision of kingship, what do you suppose the writer of First Kings will tell us about the kingship of Solomon. That he was a terrific success and utterly faithful to the vision? I'm afraid not. Solomon's wealth was legendary, and of course in the dream he was told because he had chosen wisdom so long as he was faithful that he would prosper in that way. And while he did build that impressive temple, Once it was completed, he went on to build himself a royal palace even bigger than the temple and even more ornate. Strike one. According to 1 Kings, he had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Strike two. Solomon also famously had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And because many of those wives came from other nations, he married internationally, came from other religious traditions. Solomon began to build for them shrines to other gods. As an old man, First Kings tells us, Solomon even accompanied his wives to those places and he made offerings to those other gods. Strike three. Yes, Solomon did manage to build up and secure Israel's place among the other nations. And yes, he did at different points over his monarchy exude and, 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 and reveal a kind of an extraordinary wisdom, yes. But when he died, his nation simply could not hold together. It split in two. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah centered in Jerusalem. That's what the narrator tells us, the whole story, in other words, not sugar-coated or glossed. What are we to make of the raw honesty of this biblical historian? What are we to do with a tradition that insists on telling both the best and the worst of a character like King Solomon? Well, I found myself thinking a good deal about that this week. And then I came across a news story revealing that the director of a very well-known Christian International Relief Agency received an annual compensation salary of $880,000. How, I thought, how, for an international Christian relief agency, how could you possibly justify that salary? And then there are all those accounts of megachurch and prosperity preachers earning million-dollar-plus salaries and driving Rolls-Royces and Bentleys ostensibly as signs of God's blessing on their ministry. You shake your head. You know, part of what has made Pope Francis so compelling to Christians across denominations is the way in which he has, in his own practice but beyond, powerfully challenged the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church to reconsider a whole set of assumptions around what it means to hold the office of archbishop or cardinal. He has changed the practice himself, and he has pushed those in positions of authority to do the same themselves, simplify and remember who you are. And we are finding that so compelling. Do you know, it's really easy to look askance at those obvious examples. You know, the the bishop in, in Germany who was building himself a $21 million mansion Ah, that's appalling. Or the prosperity preacher who's collecting Rolls Royces. That's terrible. Or this guy who's got himself at this almost million-dollar salary from a relief agency. How can that be? That's all low-hanging fruit. And it misses the basic claim that this tradition places on all of us. People in ministry, we can easily slip into seeking prestige, and even into the abuse of power, economic and sexual power. I've often thought that the terms of kingship set out in Deuteronomy should be adapted and applied to pastors, priests, and bishops as a way of helping us to set our own priorities, to learn how to sit on a seat of authority with Scripture and watch the neighborhood. But it isn't just clergy who need to pay attention here. The claim placed on all of us is to steep ourselves in this self aware and self critical biblical and spiritual tradition, and then to keep watching the neighborhood, keep watching what's going on in the lives of those all around us on the other side of those doors as a way of keeping us alert to the real hurts and the real needs and the real hungers of the world. And then in the spirit of Jesus Christ, the one known as Son of David, in his spirit to do what we can to keep our lives real, And rooted, and God willing, even wise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church, Or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.